AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for October 7th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Matt Kaiser here, and Matt, what do you think? Shell shock, is it ramping up or ramping down? I'm gonna say scanning, ramping down. Uh, more sophisticated threats using it, ramping up. Mm -hmm. We've seen, we, I'm fairly sure that we've hit the peak of the scanning. Everyone you know, heard about it in the news. Everyone's like, wow, let's go find all the machines. Um, researchers are probably cooling down on that. There might be a few mm -hmm. malicious actors still doing that. We're seeing more and more established malware move to using Shellshock as an ex exploitation right. vector. Malware must die did a, uh, a nice little report on the Mayhem botnet, I believe it's called. Mm. People should go check mm -hmm. that one out. But you can see that it's a, well, it's a fairly well-known botnet that's using that now as their exploitation vector. Right. I expect it to be more widespread. So you didn't answer my question, but thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> and John, what do you think? John uh, Hogeboom here with us. and uh, I'll give a shorter answer. I do think the scanning is probably tailing off. And I'll give a little teaser. We might have something later in the segment that might connect Shellshock to some other activity that we're seeing. Right. So we'll talk about that. You know, he didn't one of the segments I'm going no, to No, he didn't about. answer it either. You know, I think it's, it, it was intended as a rhetorical question, obviously. Uh, as, I think, as you mentioned, I think people are getting a handle on it. Most people know about it, but I think there's still going to be a lot of systems out there that still exhibit the vulnerability, perhaps don't have a good patching process around it. I think the, uh, the, the opportunities for exploit are going to go on for quite some time. And so I think the real pain, you know, is... Obviously, it's just sort of a pain in the neck to have to do patching and have to do it quickly. But I think the real pain, the consequences of it, are probably still yet to come. So anyway, that's my opinion. I'm Brian Rickstrode. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, I guess first on the list here, uh, Matt, the, um, sometimes the bugs have bugs. So sometimes the bug tracking systems <laughs> yeah. have bugs. So recently, Checkpoint released um, a little information on a bug that they found in the popular bug track bug tracking software. Now, this is used by mm -hmm. software developers to keep an eye on what bugs they have. It's sort of like a track system or a ticketing system. Turns out that they found a way to bypass the sign-up procedure for new users, mm -hmm. somehow injecting into particular fields in that process. So they were skipping over a, a crucial part of most sign-up systems, where typically you sign up for a system, you say, I have this email address, it emails you to say, hey, are you really there? Right and you have to confirm that in order to become a real user. Now, they were able to bypass that and specify arbitrary email addresses um, to the system. Turns out that in the particular systems that were tested, uh, I believe it was the, the Mozilla bug track, and I think Mozilla actually manages bug track, they found that if you have an email address at mozilla.org, uh, the system can actually be configured to allow you extra permissions. So if you happen to be a part of the organization that it belongs to, the system can say, okay, we know who you are, you can look at these particular sets of bugs. I, I think there was a little bit of, um, someone had maybe misconstrued this as getting admin access. There's right. a long chain of comments in the, the Krebs on Security article about this that seemed to be going back and forth as to whether or not this is admin access or you know, just you, you've been given a particular view based on where you're from. But right. the fact remains that if people have um, this configured within their, their Bugzilla instance, you know, people can start looking at bugs they should never have been able to see. Yeah. Uh, there has been a, f a fix released. If you're using Bugzilla, please go out and patch yourselves. That's basically it. 
Okay. Well, sounds good. I guess, um, you know, it, it, you sort of brought to mind, I've never seen anything that describes, you know, good practices or standards around, uh, and maybe there are some RFCs on, on this topic, but good practices for registering to a site and the protocols that are, you know, because how often do we see these kinds of flaws that occur where, you know, there are good ways to do it and then there are really flawed ways to do it. And I think there are different, you know, different scenarios you want a different way to do it. But there should be some relatively good practices that have been established and, you know, some documentation around or guidance on, you know, if you're trying to do it in this kind of scenario, this would be a good way to, to approach it. Have you, have you seen anything like that, Matt? I don't think I have, although I would the first thing I would probably say is, yes, you need to validate that the email address that you're using actually belongs to the user. Right. And with that, if not for this bug, this would have been the correct way of doing things. Right. It sounds like this was sort of a, uh, a bypass of discretionary access controls, where it's, you know, it, it, like you said, it's not necessarily a, a, a privilege escalation. It's more of a being able to see across to a group that you are originally or intended to be a participant in, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, clearly, this is something to go out, patch, and get things straightened out, and uh, and we'll move on. But uh, and hopefully, they'll improve the, the protocol associated with that, right? Okay. Uh, next item here, we uh, Matt, you again. <laughs> you've uh, you've collected a few things here for us today. Um, we don't often talk about. Malware that's targeting Apple. I guess we've uh, always considered it to be, uh, you know, one of the things to be concerned about. A couple of unique features in this one, right? Definitely. Now, this one uh, was reported by Dr. Webb. They're calling it iWorm. Um, Mac malware, like you said, fairly rare. Uh, it seems that this botnet had uh, 17,000 individual infected machines, which is to say that you know Mac malware is no small thing. I feel mm -hmm. like now that we've got more people using the platform, we're going to see more because it's right. it's the market share. The interesting thing about this one is that it's, one, it uses a good amount of encryption uh, to obfuscate what it's actually doing on the box. It does a lot mm -hmm. of encrypting, decrypting of its own self before it actually runs. The most interesting is that it's using the popular re website Reddit for parts of its command and control. Now, it's not actually sending its you know, commands back and forth to Reddit. What it's doing is pulling down a list of IP addresses, and mm -hmm. from there, those are the IP addresses you use for command and control. Sort of a DNS like Almost a seed list. Exactly like a seed list. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing, um, they're actually doing, um, they're taking the MD5 mm -hmm. of the current date, taking the first eight bytes of that, searching for it on Reddit under a particular username, and then finding the list, right. which is a little convoluted. I can see why they did it because it makes it harder to analyze the malware and find out where all the command and control is. Right. And it's it's almost like using a DGA where it's going to change every day where you're supposed to be looking. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, makes it harder to analyze. So you know, it's yeah. it's a fairly tricky and sophisticated Mac malware. So another really thing to say is. about it is that you know, even though there's not that much Mac malware, it's not fair to say that the people who are doing it aren't you know used to what they're doing that they're not aware mm -hmm. of the right not the right but sophisticated malware techniques. Right. Now, when I was investigating this, I, f I found at least one note that suggested that this was really just a tro Trojan application and not really, I mean, the, the real question was, what is the infection vector on the devices? What, were, was there really an exploit against Mac devices? And uh, near as anybody's been able to tell so far, it's really just a Trojan application. Does that make sense to you? I mean, does it seem it consistent? Um, I didn't see the actual infection vector in the article that I read. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think it's completely you know believable that someone would be right. in trojaning Mac applications. There are some very popular ones that people use. Mostly, I would I would you know if I was going to make a guess, I would say probably in the creative arts graphics mm -hmm. sort of area would probably be the most likely ones because I see the. Macs are, are fairly popular with those types. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and on top of that, uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of it's, it's it it's reaching into other demographics as well. That's generally been the 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 core group that I think has has carried Apple for a long period of time yep. in terms of the uh, the PC user market. But uh, I think it's uh, it's broadened significantly since then. But the I guess the other aspect of this is I, I believe at least in the the case that was cited, it was exactly one of those applications. And you know, the graphics packages tend to be relatively expensive. So I think there are probably a number of folks out there that are trying to find the the cheaper way to yeah. get, to get access exactly to the tools. And so there's a good possibility that was uh, that was an infection vector here. I also read that they uh, that they had done something to basically detect this or mitigate it as a part of the Mac OS update. Are you familiar with that at all? Um, I'm not familiar with the update, but I did read that, that someone had done like a homebrew version of a detection for this. Mm. Some sort of folder watch. I mean, I'm not much of a Mac user yeah. myself, but there's some sort of way of scripting, you know, detection of a particular folder or changes mm -hmm. to a folder that someone had baked and it would just pop up a little toaster in the corner. I said, hey, by the way, you've got this. You should do right. something. Had you looked into that at all? I haven't, but okay. when I see 17,000 infected machines worldwide, to me, that's kind of surprising in that that could somebody could get that many machines uh, in a short time span. But then I think about the fact that on a Mac, there really isn't a lot of good antivirus solutions. And the ones that are there, people generally aren't installing AV as standard practice like you do with Windows machines, which you know uh, goes back to your comment about somebody who's made their own little kind of stinger tool to detect this thing. So I guess that number, the fact that that number is so high is probably because AV is not so uh, prevalent across you know these platforms. So, well, I think what I had seen was that they are actual Apple had done something as perhaps as a patch to help the system recognize if it were if it were infected to be able to deal with this. So in effect, sort of a I'll call it a poor man's antivirus, but as a, integrated as a part of operating system patches. I would not be surprised to see Apple in the future do something like security essentials, like what Microsoft has right. done, you know, with their toolkit that I gets think there deployed. Might be something, some kind of like that in the background. Oh, is there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So shows you how much I know about Macintosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, perhaps we can uh, bring ourselves and others up to speed as we go forward a little bit here, because I, I think that's an important aspect of the operating system, and it, if it does actually have some uh, protective measures built into it, maybe not perfect, but better than nothing, which is what many people have perceived to be the case. In the, in the past. So. Right, right. Now, John, you saw something that was, uh, I guess, rather unusual and uh, interesting unusual. at the same time this week. So Yes. So uh, on Sunday, uh, Sunday evening-ish around that time, Eastern mm -hmm. time, we started to notice uh, a lot of activity that kind of was being detected in our systems as port zero TCP scanning. And we took a closer look at it, and there's some debate amongst some of us, maybe, whether this is scanning or what the intent is behind this traffic. There was a lot of this activity going on with source mm -hmm. port zero, destination port zero, TCP packets. The image we have up on the screen shows the uh, ISC SANS guys, Johannes, talking about saying, hey, anybody else see this? Just to let you know, yeah, we saw this as well. Um, but here's a kind of chart of the activity that we saw. So it was about two and a half billion packets, scan packets per hour, uh, which is pretty significant mm -hmm. uh, at its peak there. 
And uh, the interesting thing about these packets were, well, you can also see that it started somewhere on Sunday there, went through Monday, and then tailed off at some point on, uh, like, almost, actually, I think it stopped right at the top of the hour UTC on this morning, so right. to speak, or whatever, the, the next day of today, mm -hmm. uh, UTC. When you actually look at the packets, and I think I have a slide here on that, kind of shows an example of what these packets look like. And there's various types in here. We've obfuscated the ones that are real ones, or we think are probably real source IPs. And then there's mixed in there some ones that are not necessarily what you would expect to see. So there's this multicast address, 255.127.0.0, which was heavily shown as a source IP, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Some RFC 1918 ones showed up in some of the captures that we were able to grab. The other interesting things about this, source port zero, destination port zero, probably really isn't really legitimate traffic to begin with. Right. Uh, it's TCP, there's no payload. The window size was always set to 6667, which is interesting. Don't know what to make of that, other than that's a well-known port for IRC. What would you typically expect that to be set at? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it, I don't think it would normally be that size, though. No, not um, that big. Over right? here, that big. Nah, yeah. yeah. I don't remember what the default normal size is for your window there. Probably in the order of hundreds. Uh, maybe, or like around a thousand or something, okay. I think. There's tons of different flag combinations you would see. So you'd see like SYN reset, ACK urgent, uh, congestion window, window set, FIN set at the same time. And then the next packet has some other mix of flags. And then the next packet has some other mix of flags. So for those that maybe don't understand TCP, there are flags that are set in the TCP packets to kind of do flow control mm -hmm. of your session. Normally you'd see SYN, SYNAC, SYNAC back, and then you get ACK push, ACK push, ACK push types of mm -hmm. things going on, and then SYNAC, FINAC, or whatever, FINAC, FINAC, and then the thing would shut down. This is really unusual types of combinations of flags. Also, the header lengths are not correct. So the headers, they're all malformed. Basically this is all really weird, really malformed packets. My proposed theory is that someone is experimenting with fuzzing of packets. Mm. So when we talk about fuzzing, fuzzing is the process, they use it in software a lot. So basically when people write, so you get the RFC for the TCP protocol, and let's say you're designing something that needs to implement a TCP protocol. The RFC usually tells you what's the expected behavior of mm -hmm. how this is supposed to behave, but it doesn't really address what happens when you get things that aren't normal or expected like these packets would be? Right. So fuzzing is a process of just generating kind of random garbage and throwing it at various types of programs, either software programs as input mm -hmm. or um, hardware as input from a protocol level and seeing what happens to that hardware. Right. Does whoever wrote this particular model of some hardware, does it handle that okay and this guy doesn't or mm -hmm. whatnot? Um, so that's kind of my theory is maybe someone's messing around with some fuzzing here trying to find, although from looking at it, I don't really see any evidence that they're trying to see, hey, was this thing alive before I fuzzed it? And then is it not alive anymore or mm -hmm. what happened? So I, I don't really know. It's just a theory at this point. All right. One other interesting piece of data, which I kind of teased at the beginning, is we happen to notice that the sources that were scanning port 10,000 TCP last week, which we talked about, if you remember 10,000 TCP was scanning for the webmin, um, which is a kind of a control panel for doing administration of your web server. Mm -hmm. 
and it was vulnerable to shell shock. And we talked about Webmin as being, if you have Webmin, you should update it. They've put a bulletin up on their website saying, we're vulnerable, you should get the new software. Right. There's an overlap between those guys doing the 10,000 TCP scanning and the guys doing the zero TCP stuff. And then when I looked at the zero TCP actors, and I took just a random sampling of like 300 of them, 60 of the 300 are actually running Webmin. Doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right here, but it's an interesting connection that is perhaps that there's some correspondence there between the 10,000 TCP, maybe these are hacked Webmin machines mm -hmm. that are now engaged in the zero TCP goofy packet traffic. Right. Well, you know my theory on this. Of course, I, you know, I've been known to have some wild conspiracy theories. I was going to yes. put an adjective in there, but the, the, uh, I, you know, my thought when I f we first saw this was that it was basically a Christmas tree attack, an attempt to fingerprint and devices, and use that as a means to try to narrow down ones that might be vulnerable to the shell shock vulnerability. It is rather than, you know, one of the problems that from a, an attacker's point of view that we talked about before is it's very difficult to scan an entire website. So rather than scan all the websites, just kind of scan the network for IP addresses that were in the, that likely had that vulnerability or possibly had that vulnerability, pick those websites to target further. Now, it's, it's just a theory. It doesn't have any basis of evidence behind it. And uh, I, I can see that you're skeptical, John. I'm skeptical, and, and, because and, that, to and me, it's fair. Shell shock <laughs> is not necessarily something that would be an OS or application level type vulnerability. It's really something that you're yeah. exposing via whatever your web server is. So maybe I'm right. running under Apache and I wrote some really bad CGI script that uses Bash. Mm -hmm. That's not going to fingerprint very easily. No, from it's not a passive you, type of scan. It's not going to give you a definitive indication because it, the patch does not change the operating system level or the behavior of how it would respond to invalid TCP packets. But it would at least get you in the ballpark. You'd be able to distinguish okay, so Windows machines from not Windows machines right. and, and that sort of thing. So right, it, give it, you that. it's, uh, you know, it, narrow the scope. it's a perhaps weak theory, but given the association with the port 10,000 activity, which is likely specifically targeting machines that are uh, that, that have a shell shock vulnerability associated with it, it seems like a logical connection. But, um, you know. The thing that confuses me about this traffic is that I would think if they're going to fingerprint, they would use a more uh, limited set of combinations right. there, whereas this was all over the map. It was all I over mean, the map. You know, right. Absolutely. It's really strange I didn't strange say stuff. they were necessarily good at what they're doing. And you <laughs> mentioned that they might be experimenting. So, we, you know, we'll have to see how this uh, how this plays itself out. Uh, in any case, hopefully, uh, this type of activity doesn't continue. Uh, but there is certainly that possibility that it will revive itself, and uh, folks should be on a lookout for it. You know, one of the issues that you should be watching for is the fact that not all systems are going to really react in a in a known way or an expected way with packets like this coming in. So it could put devices into sort of an unknown state. You might need to do reboots. If you're starting to see that sort of activity, you might want to take a close look at the network activity that the device is seeing and perhaps put some protections in place to, to keep that from happening. Right.
And don't take my word as gospel, but I'm pretty sure that you can pretty safely block zero TCP it's without a, it's a much adverse port. impact. It's a reserve port, and I, I believe it has something to do with programming in C that identifying it as a zero a port zero uh, has some association with uh, when you're opening a socket. You know this better than I would, John. The, opening a port zero socket indicates it might be dynamically assigned. Yes. Right? Initially, I think that's what it was for, um, but I don't know that people really use it for that. Um, well, in actual practice. <laughs> yeah, but I think in the RFCs <laughs> yeah. initially they had said yeah. that, you know, trying to connect to port zero would do some like dynamic ephemeral assignment or something yeah. like that. But um, I'm not sure that everybody does that. I could be wrong. I'd have okay. to dig well, into Well, I think more. the significance, I think it's still reserved port in the uh, IANA numbers, which would be yeah. able to, uh, so blocking it shouldn't have any consequence to valid network traffic. But don't block zero UDP necessarily unless you know what you're doing because that is used a lot with fragmentation on UDP. Well, it which shows up may or may records not... that way. I did, it, the actual well, that's true. You're right. That that's way. the reason yeah. it shows up. Uh, right. The reason it shows up because there's no, no actual UDP layer. It's just an IP right. layer, exactly. uh, and there's no ports assigned. Okay. Yep. I am dying to know why they're using the uh, IANA reserved IP addresses in the scanning. I feel like if I understood well, that yeah, portion yeah, of it, it, 1918, there's a, a lot of, of weird mix kind of in there that I don't understand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Again, we didn't we didn't say that they know what they're doing. <laughs> they might be <laughs> still sure. experimenting with some things. Uh, we how almost every time we've seen activity like this, we've seen events where at least on a small scale have indicated that they've attempted something or testing something in it. You know, either didn't pan out, or the, you know, we're working through uh, through some bugs. Uh, the Nachi worm was a, I think, a good example, or the Welcher worm that was from years ago, uh, ten years ago now, ten actually twelve years ago if I remember correctly. But ultimately, that was a case where it was a worm that kind of went kind of went wild. It wasn't intended to do as it ended up uh, uh, ended up you know, spreading as it did. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't certainly rule that out in uh, any current cases either. So I, it could be a flaw in the programming. It just created a bunch of addresses or did something that wasn't supposed to. See because the other ones wouldn't wouldn't make it to yeah, us? Possibility. Yeah, yeah. Possibility. Okay. So, uh, so next item here. I guess, um, you know, there's a lot of, been a lot of discussion about uh, point of sale uh, malware and uh, the, the attacks against retail places, but anytime there's money involved, there's an opportunity or perhaps uh, somebody at least looking for opportunities to, to attack. So, Matt, back to you again. <laughs> All right. So, we're talking about ATM malware. Uh, this one's called Tyupkin, I believe. Kaspersky put out a little bit of a report and actually a little bit of video as well, which I find particularly interesting if anyone has the time to go look at that. So, Tyupkin is ATM malware. The interesting thing about it is that it targets a specific vendor, which was not named. In order to authenticate, once the machine is infected, the user walks up and they had to put in a certain sequence of keys, which was not revealed for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and then it challenges the user with a, a string of digits. And this is a sort of a challenge response mechanism. So mm -hmm. someone is obviously either running a, a, something on their phone or some sort of algorithm code somewhere. They take that number, type it in, gives them back another number, they input that, and they're in. authentication on your ATM. Well, so far, one, <laughs> one factor. No, well, in, see, the yeah, in the malware. In the malware, they use a two-factor. <laughs> and here I was about to say it's only one factor, but the, the funny thing is the malware only responds it will only accept these commands on Sunday and Monday nights. 
So I don't know what that means, if that has any significance. Maybe that's just when this guy happens to have off of his shift at wherever Apparently he works. Apparently the developer here read the book on security. Oh yeah, <laughs> two days a week. Um, but then once you're in, it right. gives you all sorts of functionality, remove the malware. You can dump 40 different bills out of any of the, the, the cassettes, they're called, that hold wow. the, the bills inside. So. I just thought it was an interesting case, and particularly for you know watching the video, because apparently the researchers at Kaspersky had this model. You know, they infected the machine just to demonstrate exactly how it works. Mm -hmm. So that's it's kind of a, a neat little demo. And I, this is only a particular model of ATM. I believe it's a particular model of ATM. They were rather tight-lipped as to exactly whose it was. And I'll be honest, I did go on Google, type in ATM machines, and look at all the different ones to see if I could identify the buttons and the bezel, <laughs> but I couldn't do it. Um, yeah, in fact, there may be a lot of them that basically have the same software, but have different appearances uh, you know, set up for different uh, organizations. Quite possible. Who yeah. knows? It seems to be targeting one that uses Windows as the base operating system, based on the which naming. Which is many of them. Which is many of them, mm, yeah. 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 Did they say how the malware gets on there, or did you say that and I missed it? You know, I, I think, I believe, and let me give you to one just a second, because I think um, that it came in, it was installed um, over a CD-ROM drive, mm. I feel. Yes, they said that the attackers used a bootable CD that they popped in, so they had physical access to the machine in order to install right. it. They okay. must have had a key to get inside, or, or maybe a, a third insider. You know, or an insider, yeah. exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to look more relaxed here. We got some feedback indicating we look like uptight analysts. <laughs> and I've been sitting back here, so uh, hopefully, hopefully this uh, satisfies. This uncomfortable couch. <laughs> well, it beats sitting in front of a webcam, so uh, I, I'm actually quite happy with the, the setup that we have here. Let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And the first item here, John, we already had a little bit of discussion on this one. Right. Uh, scan probes on port 10,000 TCP. That's uh, actually network data management protocol is assigned to that. And this is the exact same thing reported last week, although the activity has continued and actually ramped up to some extent. Although this does not have a behavior that we generally associate with botnet type behavior. And uh, I think we're going to take a look at something a little bit later that looks more like botnet behavior mm -hmm. uh, associated with that TCP zero activity in the context of the weather report. And looking at the graph you showed a little bit earlier with the TCP zero packets, it did sort of show that that yep. type of activity. Big that start and then big start and then, off start and then and trail stop. off. Yep. And uh, this isn't showing that. So this perhaps is a means that's being used to build a botnet and then use that botnet perhaps for other purposes and the TCP zero activity might have been an example of that. Uh, again, we're, we're working based on a small amount of evidence, uh, some of it's sort of uh, circumstantial in effect. But nevertheless, this web admin apparently is uh, uh, Webmin is apparently uh, sub, uh, vulnerable to the shell shock uh, vulnerability and uh, needs to be patched. Their website indicates such, and uh, the sources here are actually quite diverse in terms of the countries. The top of the list showed Italy. I don't, I'm not sure why that, uh, that was the case, followed by Japan, U.S., China, and uh, many others. And that is installed on a lot of web hosting companies use that to allow their customers to administer, you know, their right. website, uh, their web host. Via so in that any tool. case, you would hope that they have, they have very good passwords on those uh, sites. And you'd hope your ISP is kind of working towards making sure that they're patching the webmin instances right. on the, the 
hosts that they supply hosting to their customers. Providers, hosting right. providers, yeah. right. Absolutely. Next item here is scan probes on port 32764 TCP. I'm showing 30 days of data here. Most of these probes are from China. There are some others, I think, next in the line was Korea when I was taking a look at it. This appears to be something associated with a backdoor that uh, allows access to some CIRCOM network devices. And I didn't have the opportunity to really research this in a lot of detail, but it is something that's uh, apparently fairly well known using this port to basically activate a backdoor. So uh, you want to take a look at this if you have any CIRCOM devices and make sure that they're at the proper patch level and uh, you're not exposing this port to the internet inadvertently. Next item here is the uh, top 10 most probed ports, and this is specifically from yesterday, October 6th. And as you can see here, the activity was significantly overwhelmed by the port zero TCP activity that we identified earlier. This one moved up 20 spots in terms of our, basically our top 20 list. So uh, it was, uh, I think it actually moved onto the list here. That's followed by port 22 TCP. We've uh, talked about this many times, and uh, as well as port 23 TCP, a lot of brute force password guessing still taking place. Uh, scanning activity for DNS servers on port 53 UDP, 80 TCP, 3389 TCP. There was a little bit of a bump up in the 3389 TCP activity, but when I looked at the trend, there wasn't anything really notable. I think it was just sort of the normal up and down activity that we see associated with the scanning. 445 TCP followed by 9064. I think we introduced that last one last week. Uh, it's relatively new on the scene. Appears to be looking for open proxies on that port. And then uh, followed by port 8080 TCP. Again, likely looking for uh, proxies. Taking a little closer look at the scan probes on port zero TCP, that's the activity that John was talking about earlier. I'm showing only 30 days where John was, I think, showing three days, days, two days. Yeah, and uh, so you can get a little bit of a perspective that there really was not any activity in the last 30 days. Although we have in the past reported on, I would say similar kinds of activity that is, uh, uh, scanning on port zero that had uh, many flags set, so invalid packets associated with that. So that aspect of this is not entirely new. What is new is the volume of activity, as John had pointed out. This one happens to be uh, counting flows, which is almost equivalent to counting packets. But the significance here is that you see a big spike in the amount of activity that's taking place. Turns out there was actually a spike in the number of addresses that were performing this activity as well. And then you start to see this trail off behavior, which is fairly typical of a botnet receiving a command. And then as the devices uh, complete their task, basically uh, going into an idle state and waiting for the next command. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing probing, no real strong events here. We see uh, basically typical activity, just movement up and down a couple of ranks relative to last week. Top of the list is port 445 TCP, followed by 23 TCP, 27015, which is generally considered innocuous associated with gaming activities, 18 TCP and 8080 TCP, followed by 5000 UDP. We've talked about this a couple of times. Uh, it may be that this one's innocuous. We're still uh, investigating that a little bit. And then followed by 16470 UDP, and that's generally associated with a zero access botnet. And I thought it'd be worthwhile to give a little bit of an act update on what's going on with the zero access botnet, the P2P activity associated with that. We still are seeing a relatively mild but continual you know, downward trend in terms of the amount of activity, the P2P activity associated with the zero access botnet. Basically what that means is you know, there was a takedown activity. We believe the botnet had been disabled. It seems that perhaps what really happened is 
the uh, and if I remember correctly, there was a surrender flag associated with that that yeah. the, uh, the, the actors had put up. I think they basically did that to kind of draw attention away from them for a while. They sat idle for a good period of time, and uh, indications were that they came back and started using the botnet. But we haven't seen any strong recruiting activity to add devices to the botnet. So, but there are quite still quite a number of them out there that are infected and still can be used. And I think this is kind of happening somewhat under the radar. Uh, in the, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, nevertheless, that P2P activity is out there, and as devices get remediated, they're still kind of falling off. So at some point, there's likely to be either a new botnet built, perhaps there's already one built to replace it, or uh, new recruiting that's probably going to come into uh, to the zero access botnet as right, well. For that draft there, that's each color represents a different one of the popular each, ports. Yeah, each color represents the, uh, the the ports that are typically associated with the P2P activity for the zero access botnet. I think it's uh, 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 16470. 16464, 16465. There you go. 16470 and 16471. Yeah, thank you, John. <laughs> John's, John's been here a couple of times before <laughs> and better with numbers than I am. Okay, so that's our show for today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com and you can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech channel. It's ATT.com excuse me, att.com slash threattrack. Uh, we also have uh, appearances on YouTube as well as iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter, and I want to sort of emphasize this one. We've changed our handle. We haven't really changed our handle, but there's an ATT security handle. So you can follow us on ATT security uh, uh, on Twitter. And uh, the, uh, that'll be better than uh, just following the threattrack uh, uh, handle going forward. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Matt. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.